This evening I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And we'll read the entire chapter as the, the background for the message tonight. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. 
For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now that was an extended reading, and yet I trust that as we continue with that word in front of us tonight that you'll understand the the reason for the the full reading of that chapter. In our church, we've been going through a series on the impact of the Reformation. And one of the impacts that the Reformation had was on the reasons for suffering. Because as the people in the Middle Ages lived and grew up and experienced life, they came into much more gruesome suffering than even we know. And you can imagine that the question undoubtedly came up in their minds, why is this happening? Why are my limbs hurting? Why are my eyes dimming? Why, Why is there so much pain in dying? And all we have to do is imagine a toothache without remedy. To understand what it is, to 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 feel the, the the depth of pain in the Middle Ages, and the answers that came to their mind was often escapism. They they tried to escape the reality and 
turned to magic and pagan ritual that, that promised to take away the pain, and yet it didn't. But as the people came to their, their parish churches and the, the Catholic cathedrals week by week, they were told something else. Their pain, their suffering was something to be endured because it was payment for the sins that they had to endure. And as those who come in the Reformed tradition, we may under, might not understand and we might ask the question, well, what about Christ? Well, you see, in the Middle Ages, it was taught that Christ only died for, for original sin. And it was up to people to pay for the sins that they had committed after they were baptized. So Christ would forgive them of their original sin, but they had to, they had to suffer for all the sins that they had committed through their lives. And so they would come to dying relatives and dying spouses and dying children and think they were paying the penalty of sin because of their suffering. And that's one reason many even turned to, to self-flagellation. They would beat themselves and whip themselves and make themselves bleed because they thought if they increased their suffering, they would be paying for more of their sins. The Reformation saw it very quickly to change that because the teaching goes out, you are saved by grace through faith in Christ and you don't need to beat yourself in order to pay for your sins. And some have taken that Reformation teaching and said, well, if that's true, you'll experience your best life right now and if you're a true believer, everything's going to be rosy for you. Well, we just need to look around us and that doesn't seem true either. So why does it seem that those who love God suffer? If it's not to pay for sin. Well, that's our question tonight. Why do believers suffer today? There's many possible passages we could answer this from. But tonight we're going to turn to Romans 8 as we've read it. And verse 18 particularly becomes our lens to answer this question. Where we read, For I, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And I want to develop the answer to this question, why do believers suffer? Through this verse, as we understand it, in light of the context of this chapter. But give to you five principles from this chapter this chapter, for why believers suffer. The first principle is this. The suffering of believers is because we live in a fallen world. And that comes from verse 18. Because Paul's realistic. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are real. He doesn't mean that it's the sufferings of his present moment, and he doesn't mean it's even the sufferings of his, his life, although he could have counted those up as well. He could have said, I, I've been beaten, I've been in prison, I've faced death, I've been robbed, I've been stoned, I've faced shipwreck, I've been a day and a night in the sea, I've been cold, I've been hungry. But that, those aren't the sufferings that Paul's thinking of as he says of this present time. No, it's of this present age, those sufferings that are characteristic of life on earth. And so we can think of our own context, 
our own lives and understand the physical suffering, the spiritual suffering, are sufferings that are part of the sufferings of this present time. And obviously, as a guest, I don't know you well enough to know all of your sufferings. But I know congregations well enough to know that there's public suffering and there's private suffering. There's pain. There's hurt. For some of us, it comes as disease. For others, it's unsettled souls or sorrowful hearts. It might be the removal of all earthly comforts. It might be poverty. It might be loneliness. It might be a fear of death or future persecution. And we can think of it even not just in our personal lives, but but understand the question in light of the nation. Our suffering is because we live in a fallen world. It's the curse of the fall. And that's true whether it's the the pain of childbirth or the, the pain of thistles in the field or the fatigue and tiredness that we all feel. You see, all the suffering that's part of our lives, from the strokes to the family fights to the cancers to the neuropathies to the depression to the broken bones to the broken dreams to spiritually uneven relationships, to those who are mourning, to those who miss babies that they never actually met. All of these things should be clues to us that we live in a fallen world and there's more to life than just the physical. Because the sufferings of this present age are real. We're called to exercise our faith within them. It was the year 1665 that the Great Plague struck London, England. And that summer, up to 7,000 people were dying every week in the city. An estimated 100,000 people died there within a year. And you take that number of people dying within a year, and the next year, 1666, the Great Fire of London breaks out, starts in a bakery, spreads over the city, 13,000 homes lost, 73 churches, St. Paul's Cathedral burned down. And it's no wonder that some of the Puritans wrote on suffering, because they lived in that time, in that city. Because they wanted their people not just to think of suffering as something that had to be endured. They wanted their people to think about it biblically. And it starts then by realizing this is because of sin and the fall. And yet, doesn't it feel so often much more personal than that? It's like David says in Psalm 119, I am afflicted very much. It's not affliction is out there very much. I am afflicted very much. And we should not expect the different than as believers in this world. We too are liable to sadness and we're liable to afflictions. And we're not reformed Buddhists trying to, to escape matter and pain and reality. We admit there are sufferings in this present age. And so if suffering is part of your world, how do you think about it? 
Well, that brings us to our second principle, the the principle that suffering of believers is for their spiritual discipline. If you think your suffering is because God is condemning you, you're wrong. That's why we began at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Or verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. You see, if you are a believer in Christ right now, you are free from condemnation. God has given you the Spirit of life. And that life is real. But why then is there suffering in a believer's life? We can certainly understand it when it comes to an unbeliever's life. It's God's warning to them. As as C.S. Lewis says, it's God's megaphone to them that they would wake up and turn around and come back to him. But why is there suffering in a believer's life? Proverbs 3.12 My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Or Hebrews 12, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. You see, suffering doesn't, doesn't separate a saint from God. No, God is like a father and and he wants no sin in his children's lives. And yes, he doesn't bring them condemnation, but he might bring them correction. And suffering then is as a medicine to correct sins of the past, but it's never punishment to pay for sin. You know the history of Job. Job had a lot. And Job lost it all. And his friends come to him and say, Job, why did God give you this and then take it away? You must have done something wrong. And Job doesn't understand it either. And he says in chapter 10, I will say to God, don't condemn me, but show me why you are contending with me. And Job mistook the ordeal and he thought God was angry with him while God was only allowing Satan to try him. And it's a good reminder to us, where are we going to look for the causes of our suffering? Because we need to move beyond the secondary causes. Our suffering is not just because of disease or death or destruction. If we believe in the providence of God, we know God is putting this in our lives. His primary purpose is not our happiness for 80 or 90 years here on earth. His primary purpose is our eternal well-being. All things work together for good to them that love God. And that includes your suffering. But as Thomas Manton said of those who ignored their afflictions, all things work together for the worst for those who live against God. You see, our suffering should point us then to the spiritual lessons that draw us away from just expecting physical relief as as the answer to suffering. It's because we live in a fallen world. It's not because we're being condemned. But what then are those spiritual lessons that we should learn? It brings us to our third principle. 
The suffering of believers should stir the hope of redemption within them. This doesn't diminish the reality of the present because suffering hurts. And Paul, as he's writing to the Romans, admits that. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they hurt. And we can go to to verse 22 and 23. We know that the whole creation groans. It sighs together and it suffers greatly together until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves groan. You see the world's groaning because of sin. People groaning because of sin. It's hard to be more honest than the psalmist. Psalm 38, I am troubled, I am bowed down, I go mourning all day long. I am filled with a loathsome disease. There's no quietness in my body. I am feeble and sore broken. I've roared. Believers groan, even in front of God. And yet this groaning is not just because the believer hurts inside. It's also because the realization that this ought not to be and this will not always be. And I'm being stirred up then to a hope, a day of redemption when something will be different, when I won't have to groan anymore. Because Paul's not saying be a stoic. He's not saying count your sufferings as nothing. No, he says, I consider, I've counted the sufferings of this present time. You see, what Paul is saying is, I've taken all my sufferings, all the sufferings of this present age, and I've piled them all up. My complaints, my hurts, I've put them all on the scale, as it were. And then I weigh it against what's coming. And I realize... All my sufferings are nothing compared to what's coming. It's like teaspoons of dust because there's going to be a crown of glory that I'm going to receive. And you see, as a believer today looks even at their own sufferings, that same hope of glory should be stirred in them. There's a nobler pursuit here, a better happiness, a greater comfort. You can take all the bad things that are a part of your life the pain, the loss, and you you put it in the scale, the balance. And you should be able to say with Paul, I consider that these sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. Not worthy to be compared. But you say, it hurts. You put it in the scale. But you see, you don't keep just staring at this half of the scale. You look to this half of the scale. There's an eternal weight of glory coming. And God could put one more ounce of suffering on this half of the scale. It still wouldn't unbalance it. You should still keep looking this way. We don't know what God's going to add next. But we should say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. The good always wins. Because it's God's glory. And we ought not to fall then into the trap of thinking that that spiritual joy and earthly suffering are incompatible. 
Because even as we groan for the day of redemption and we groan to be rid of our sufferings, we groan because God has put in us a new nature and that new nature is looking for redemption because it has the hope of glory. As Paul wrote in this chapter, those God justified, he also glorified. And even if you can't see it right now because you're so focused on this half of the scale, you have, as a believer, a hope of redemption, and you should count it with Paul and say, everything in my life is not worthy to be compared to what God's going to give. And you see, that's what Job had to come to. In spite of his pain, his not-so-friendly acquaintances, he summed it all up in Job 19. God has set darkness in my paths. He's stripped me of my glory. He's destroyed me on every side. Yet I know that my Redeemer lives and I shall see him in my flesh on the last day. See, he had that perspective. And it stirs up hope then. Our suffering ought to stir up hope within us. A hope of redemption. But there's a fourth principle. The suffering of believers strengthens their conformity to the will of God. Because as believers suffer, they might not understand at all. But the Holy Spirit lives in them. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit groans. The Spirit, verse 26 says, helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. He makes groanings, verse 27 says, or intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You see, the Spirit takes those prayers that you can't even put into words because you're hurting so badly or you're so perplexed. And he presents them to God. And the spirit of adoption fills believers so that they can pray very basic, simple prayers like, Abba, Father. The Spirit-worked prayers strengthen us to live according to God's will so that we can confess, I believe God has not forsaken me. He's not given me up to chance. But as my Heavenly Father, He's in control. And all my sufferings are real, yes. They're for my spiritual good, yes. And they're going to be over one day. But you see, as we go through the suffering, then we're to run to this Heavenly Father who knows all these things. And we address Him, not with murmurs, but with Abba Father. And yes, as a father, we can ask him for strength. We can ask him for deliverance. Yes, he's the God who can do all things. But we say, Heavenly Father, and we wait on him as our father. You know, Spurgeon was a preacher afflicted with many and various ailments. And he said, as long as I trace my pain to accidents and my bereavement to mistakes and my losses to another's wrong, I am of the earth earthy and will keep chewing on gravel stones. But when I rise and see my God's hand at work, I grow calm and I have not a world or word 
of response. Because your suffering is your Father's hand loosening you from this world so that you will be ready for the day of glorification. And this is following Christ, even as he suffered. Because in the garden, pressed in agony, what did Christ say? The cup which my Father has given me, will I not drink it? And what should a believer say? But what Christ has said. And yes, it's in a different way. It's in just tiny drops compared to the full cup. But the cup which my Father has given me, should I not drink it? Do you see our suffering then conforms us to the Father's will? It's not because... We are to be exempt from troubles then, but it's to provide us consolation within those troubles. But fifthly, it's because, as we already hinted at, the suffering of believers is their preparation for eternal glory. Let's go back to verse 18 for a moment. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. What is that glory? Well, Paul tells the Corinthians that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works in us a far greater and eternal weight of glory. This weight of glory is is full deliverance from sin. It's redemption of body and soul. It's, Its weight and its size is something we don't realize because it's perfection. It's perfection in Christ. No more death, no more disease, no more destruction, no more pain, no more personal problems, no more migraines, no more meds, no more mourning. But perfected body and soul united in Jesus Christ. But did you catch those last two words? Believers are not just going to be spectators of God's glory. It will be glory that will be revealed in us. Not just spectators, but shiners, those witnessing of God's glory. And so, what's the principle as as we suffer now? Well, the suffering is, is but evidence of the right to glory because it's training for a better world. And how can this be? Well, 8.17 says, Believers are joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, as heirs of an inheritance. An inheritance that, yes, is coming, but an inheritance that's incorruptible. It won't rust, it won't degenerate, it won't break down. It's perfection. An unbeliever can't have that hope. And I don't just mean that people outside of church may not have that hope. But even if you're an unbeliever inside church, if you are not in Christ, this isn't your hope. You have no expectation of this glory, even if you have no suffering right now. But you see, the reverse is true. Even if you have the greatest amount of suffering right now, and you're in Christ... You have this hope of glory that one day it will all be erased and your body and soul will be united in perfection. And that's the believer's hope. Every true believer here tonight ought to have such a hope of great glory, such a realization of the weight of glory that God is going to give to them. 
that no matter how heavy this half of the scale is with sufferings, it doesn't weigh or outweigh what they are going to receive one day. Is it too good to be true? Well, that's why we read to the end of the chapter. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine famine or nakedness or peril or sword or suffering? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And I am persuaded that nothing, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Your sufferings now are temporal and flimsy. Your greatest earthly comforts are but spider webs compared to the eternal weight of glory that will be steadfast and eternal. And yet, even as we look to glory, No one's ever just been placed there. We've all had to travel, some shorter, some longer. And yet, all roads seem to include some suffering as they lead to the gate of Celestial City. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and faithful are going through a wilderness and the travel was difficult. They had struggled through despond. They had fought off Apollyon. They had crossed the valley of shadow of death already. And they're in the wilderness. And in the wilderness they meet evangelist who asks them, How are you doing? And they tell him honestly of their difficulties. And evangelist says he's not glad that they've had trials, but he's glad they've been victors so far. But he warns them, more is coming. And he encourages them, in due season you shall reap if you faint not. The crown's before you. It's an incorruptible one. My sons, you have heard in the words of the gospel that you must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of heaven. You've had some. You will have more. But be faithful unto death. And the king will give you a crown of life, and it will not fade away. And so, dear child of God, don't be crushed under your sufferings. And every time questions of why assail you, and you wonder, if God is a God of love, why am I suffering? It's because he's a heavenly father who is spiritually refining you and preparing you for glory so that you will appreciate the crown that he gives. Horatio Spafford was a rich man. And in the Chicago fire of 1871, he lost almost all his investments. Further, in 1871, his son died from scarlet fever. 1873, just two years later, his four daughters drowned, aged 11, 9, 3, and 2. He was a Job, 
everything lost. But Horatio Spafford wrote this, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. But he also got the eternal connection. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It's my prayer for you that you will have the same view of your sufferings. That you cannot just say it's well with my soul, but you can say with the anticipation of glory, it's well, it's well, it's well with my soul. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the word that teaches us how to look at our sufferings. And may we not get so overwhelmed in life and with the trials and pains of life that we lose sight of heaven and its eternal glories. But may we be faithful in the wilderness. And may we look to thee and the glories that thou dost give to those who are in Christ. And may this truth, your truth, go with us into this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.